Let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 as we come tonight to uh, this new chapter. We come having left the hall of faith, having left this uh, call to endurance. We're going to continue to hear a little bit of a call to endurance this evening. Um, as we come to the author of Hebrews, we come to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 3 and we'll read through verse 17. Tonight. Let me again remind you that this word is not written just for you to learn. This is not just an educational tour. This is not a classroom. This is a church. And therefore, this word's given for you to love it. This word's given for you to find joy in it. This word's given to increase your hope of heaven. So let's uh, let's receive it in that way. The author of Hebrews in our God. Tell us this. Consider him, Jesus, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you like sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. But you know that afterward, when he desired to receive the blessing, inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The grass is withering, the flowers are fading, the trees are losing their leaves, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask for him to bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Lord, we come to you this evening. Strengthen us. Give us that endurance. Train us as your children. Call us back to you. And Lord, equip us with all the wonderful resources of Jesus Christ, your older, beloved son. In his name we pray. Amen. There's a certain type of Christianity that is peddled in our day, certain type of Christianity that, that's out there in our culture. And 
one of the great symptoms of it is a lack of understanding the first principles of life. A lack of understanding the kind of basic principles of life. Nobody starts building a building without having first principles in mind. You don't start building the ceiling first. You build the the foundation first. And we come tonight to hear an author who tells us we need to remember Christian first principles. The author writes the words tonight. He writes them to Christians He writes him to Christians who have been Christians for a long time. I know many of y'all have been Christians for a while. Therefore, you should be able, we should be able to sit down with somebody and explain to them how the gospel works. We should be able to explain to them how Jesus deals with sin. But in many cases, in many places, in many seats, in many churches, many folks can't do that. Many folks can't sit down with somebody and give them the word. The basic principles of our faith. This, I think this is why for some of us, we don't make progress as Christians. We don't advance as Christians. We don't grow as Christians because we forget the very basic principles of our faith. It's our great need. It's our great need. And for the first 11 chapters of this book, uh, the sermon, whatever you want to call it, the, the book of Hebrews, for the first 11 chapters, the author had laid out the utter and total and complete sufficiency of Jesus Christ for your life. For his people, all his people, for all the world, for all time. The complete and total sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And now he turns and says, okay. All of this that you've been learning needs to be deployed in three ways. You need to deploy all of this glory of Jesus Christ as you consider him. Verse two, verse three, consider Jesus Christ. Set your eyes on Jesus Christ. Verse two, look to Jesus Christ. And then what? Three things, three things, three words. The words occur all the time in this in these these verses. Uh, the first one we'll look at here is a word we looked at last week: endurance. The first word we're going to look at, the first thing the author wants us to use Jesus for, is to endure. We looked last week a little bit at that call to endurance. We saw that Jesus Christ endured the cross, and here in verse seven, just by way of example, you could also look at verse three, but verse seven. It is for discipline that you have to endure. The the image that we saw last week is of a race, a long-distance race. If your life is a long-distance race, what do you need to do? Keep on running. The pace is not the important factor. Some folks get very focused on their pace. I I know this. I have people that run in my life, and there's there's a pace that matters. The pace matters, not in this race. Your pace does not matter. If you walk, if you're barely crawling as a Christian, that's okay. As that great theologian Dory says, just keep swimming. Just keep running. Just keep going. Run past the pain barriers. Now, some of us reach the pain barriers very quickly. Others reach the pain barriers after a long time. But no matter 
how good a runner you are, you will reach the pain barriers. You'll reach that time when you're running and it's hurting and it's hurting and it's hurting and you got to get through it no matter what obstacles. This word endure, this word, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. What does the word endure mean? What does endurance mean? It's somebody who's able to keep standing under pressure. You can think of a diamond, right? A diamond, of course, is able to withstand so much pressure. Or if you want a better example, maybe it's a lesson I learned at the first wedding I went to. The first wedding I was in taught me a very valuable lesson. Bend your knee slightly. The first wedding I was in taught me a very important lesson. You cannot stand for an hour with your knee locked. Because I didn't want to cause a scene for my friend who was getting married. I didn't want to be the groomsman who fell over and collapsed. I had to endure. It can be a stressful hour standing up there. You have to withstand the pressure. It's like those weightlifters. I don't, I don't watch weightlifting, but maybe you do. If you ever flip the channels and you're seeing it in the, in the Olympics, and they, they have to hold the huge barbells up. You can see their muscles rippling, and they come close to exhaustion, but they hold on. For the sake of the prize, they hold on because the medal, the prize is out there. And if you just slip through, if you move from just illustrations to the Bible, what does the Bible say over and over again in the Old Testament? One of the key first principles of being a Christian is that you have to learn to wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Endurance. Endurance. It's what we need. It's what we need. How do we endure? Verse 2. Last week. Focus your eyes on Jesus Christ. Most of us just want the pain of the exertion. Most of us just want the pain to go away. We don't want Jesus Christ. So many Christians in many places hear this message. Jesus fixes your pain. Jesus goes. Jesus is like opium. This is where Karl Marx got the idea from. Christianity is the opiate of the masses because for many people, Jesus is just a drug. He's an opioid that you just take and he makes the pain go all away. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Not all at once, certainly. Instead, he calls you back to himself constantly. The first principle we have to learn here, the author wants to show us, is that we have to endure. He says, verse 3, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The temptation, friends, of a Christian is that you grow weary. You get just tired. You get, you know what that's like. Just being a Christian for a long time, you get tired. The second thing he says, being a Christian, you get faint-hearted. That means you get depressed. You get sad. You get no spirit. No spirit left. And part of the reason that we give in at that point is because we've sucked down the lie with our mother's milk that the Christian life is meant to be easy. Where do we get that idea from? Where do we get the idea that the Christian life is supposed to be easy? It's not meant to be easy. First principle, basic principle, the Christian life is supposed to be difficult. Why? Because God is doing an amazing thing in your life. God is doing gut-wrenching, soul-changing work in you and with you and through you and to you. 
See, friends, the real reason why we don't like to endure, the real reason why we buckle under pressure is that we think lightly of Jesus Christ. We think, I don't need the pressure. I don't need this kind of work. Because I'm, I'm not that bad. My sin is not that great. And therefore, this kind of sweat, this kind of hostility, that's not for me. And yet the author begins here, consider him. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to need to endure pressure and you're going to consider the fact, think about the fact that Jesus Christ endured this level of hostility. John Bunyan once put it this way. He said, there's a country where they have trees that grow, but there's no fruit. He said, there's a country where they have trees that grow, but there's no fruit on them. And he tells you why there's no fruit on them. Because in that country, there's never winter. In that country, they don't have winter. You pair that with another great Puritan, a Scotsman, Samuel Rutherford. He put it this way. Grace grows best in winter. It's almost winter. You can tell. My wife loves these days. Overcast. Rainy, dreary, there's something to it. Grace grows best in winter. So the question is, have you known winter? I don't mean the season. Have you known winter in your life? Have you known winter in your heart? Have you known the hostility? Have you known, well, verse four, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you shed your blood for Christ? Surely not. We have it easy here. We have it nice and cushy. But notice he does not say in your struggle against nations. He says in your struggle against sin. Against sin. Not against evil governments. Not against the Chinese Communist Party, for example. But against sin. He, he says the real struggle you face and the real temptation to give in is against sin itself. The Christian life is not an easy idea. And endurance can only be produced under trial, under difficulty. I I once knew a guy who uh, told me that he was a very patient person. And I was listening and I was just listening. I just said, don't say anything. Don't say anything. He told me he was a very patient person. (sighs) What I wanted to say was I've not seen him in a situation of pressure. Because it's in a situation of pressure where you're in a rush and the car in front of you is not going but 20 miles an hour and you got to get somewhere because you have a really important meeting to get to. I wanted to see how he would act on the highway when there's a traffic jam and he can't get to where he wants to go. That's when I want to see, is he a patient person or not? Same thing here with endurance, friends. Under pressure, under trial, under difficulty. Jesus, our master, took up the cross, and we are his servants. And if you want one key test to ask yourself, if I'm an enduring person, am I an enduring Christian? Here's one test you can use. How often do I complain? How often do I complain about Jesus Christ, about Christian things, about the world, about people? Because endurance in Christ... Focus your eyes, not on the issues of the day, but on the glory of heaven, the goal. 
What does the runner run for? The gold medal, the finish line. What does the weightlifter lift for? The medal, the prize. What are we to look for? We're to consider Christ who looked for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so, friends, you and I, you and I are to say, look to Jesus Christ. He died, but he rose again. Where is he now? You see, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, where you look, and you look ultimately at heaven, where you see him raised, reigning, ruling at the right hand of God, having finished his work. And that puts water on the fires of complaint. That pours cold water on the fires of complaint. First principle, endurance. Second principle, it's uh, this word that appears seven times or rather, in seven consecutive verses. The word translated here is discipline. Really, maybe a better translation is child training, child rearing. Because the language we have here, at least in this section, I'm not saying all across the New Testament, but in this section, you might better think of it as child training. Why? Because... The author uses the illustration of a family. This this text oozes with family language. Fathers and sons. Just look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? The author tells us that Jesus gives us a word of exhortation. Now, what word does he talk about? He quotes, if you have the ESV, it's set apart nicely like they do with the Old Testament quotes. It's It's an Old Testament quote from Proverbs chapter 3, where King Solomon is encouraging his son. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. I think that there's a lot of wisdom here. No pun intended because it's Proverbs, but there's a lot of wisdom here about training, about discipline, about rearing. When you have tough times, we have two major responses. We have two extremes we go to, and they're both bad. We have two wrong extremes we go to when we're in tough times. The first one here is a light response. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The first response we take is to laugh it off. Repress your emotions. Repress your pain. Take drugs to soften the the pain. Don't think, why am I suffering? We plunge ourselves into froth and frenzy or into that classic pastoral curse of busyness for the sake of busyness. The other extreme we find in the second half of this line, nor be weary when reproved by him, by God, nor be weary. What's the other extreme? You lose heart. You lose heart. You become discouraged. You become depressed. You begin to say, if I'm suffering What's wrong with me? If I'm in pain, what's the matter with me? You begin to say, I'll never be a good Christian. I'll never be like everybody else. What's wrong with me? And rather rather than either of those, we're told you shouldn't become obsessed with the suffering. This was the the one error the Puritans could, could get involved in. Totally obsessed at their worst. They rarely got into it, but at their worst, they could become too obsessed with their own suffering and their own sin. Maybe we have the opposite issue. We tend to treat it lightly. Neither is right. Rather, what's the answer? The answer is in verse 6. 
For the Lord disciplines, betrays the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. What's the answer? You're to take it to God. Take your suffering to God. Don't take it to yourself and wonder about it and wonder about it and wonder about it. And don't just ignore it, but take it truly and really to God. Realize that God has a purpose. I mean, think about this. God, if he wants to, because he's all the alls, he's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, he's all the alls, he could give you a pain-free life. He can give you a life where you never have to have one surgery. You never have to have one, you never cry one tear in your life. He can give you a life where you have no money worries at all. He could do that if he wanted to. He certainly could do that. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Why does he not do that? It's not because he hates us and he likes to see us writhe like little worms. No, we're told here. Those he loves. Those he loves. You are those he loves. You are his children. He has something better for you than a cushy life here. We have to believe that. We have to believe that God has something better for us. What's the better thing? He uses the pain. He uses the pain barrier. He uses the suffering. He uses the trials to train you as his kids. That's why, verse 7, it's for discipline, for training that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. God treats you as sons. God treats you as sons. I mean, think about it. You don't go around usually disciplining other people's kids too much. I mean, if you have to, you know, if you're babysitting or if you're a teacher, you'll do what you have to for your job. But you don't treat other people's kids like you treat your own kids. And God is not treating you like you're somebody else's kid. He's not just kind of waiting for your real parents to get home at, you know, at eight o'clock where he can, he can go back to, you know, his, his homework or whatever because he's a babysitter. No, he's not treating you like he's babysitting you. He's not treating you like illegitimate offspring. He's treating you as a son, and therefore all of his energy, all of his work, all of his word, all of his spirit is pushed into transforming you into the likeness of his other son. He's treating you as a younger son, and he wants you to be like the older son, the eldest son, Jesus Christ, the beloved son of the father. So if you ever want to know, why am I suffering? Here's the answer. I can give it to you. It's the one silver bullet answer. You can always use it. It will always be good. If you want to know what God's doing in your life, he is treating you as a son. He's treating you as a son. I will give, because we are in the modern day, I will give my standard answer to this objection. What about the girls? What about daughters? Standard answer to the question is, the New Testament calls us sons and it calls us brides. So whether you're a boy or a girl, you're going to get mixed up somehow, right? We're called sons and we're called the bride of Christ. That's enough on that. The point is simply this. A real father knows you cannot prevent hardship coming to your kids. A real parent knows your kids are going to have tough times. They'll have hard times. 
Just think of Jesus Christ, the cross he bore, the hardship he had. And God says, I am strengthening you into the picture of Jesus Christ. I am changing you. I'm melting your hard-heartedness. I am transforming you into the person of Jesus Christ. I'm making you one of the family. I realize that I've grown up that I have some, well, uh, mannerisms that I pick up from my parents. I won't tell you which ones. I won't tell you which parent, but I have some mannerisms I pick up from my parents. They could probably tell you. That's the case, isn't it, for all of us? We have things our dad used to say. And for me, at least, I get mildly upset when I realize I've said it. Because I, I, I said I, I wasn't going to be like him, and yet here I am. Here I am. It's the family likeness. And so it is the case for a Christian on an infinitely more important level than mannerisms. You have to say to yourself, You have to pray to God when you suffer and say, I know I'm your child, Father. I come to you. I know this pain is training me for something greater, for glory. The author tells us, doesn't he? The author says, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I mean, isn't that true? (laughs) Can't we all agree? All training is painful in the moment. When you're preparing to study for an, when you're studying for an exam, it's painful. When you're learning how to cook, it's painful. When you're preparing for your job, it's painful. When you're parenting, it's painful. There's pressure. Nobody enjoys having chores, boys and girls. You don't like having household chores. But afterwards, it produces well-balanced human beings. People who actually live. I didn't think I'd ever quote Tom Landry, the old football coach, but I think I will. Tom Landry, the old Cowboys coach who wore the fedora. He said this, the job of the coach is to make athletes do what they don't want to do in order that they may be what they always want to be. Make them do what they don't want to do so they can be what they always want to be. They always want, we want the glory, we want the applause, we want the fame, we want the, we want to be in heaven. You want to be like Jesus Christ. You read about him, you want to be like him. He is that perfect. He's that good. And God is training you. He's coaching you to do what you you don't want to do in the moment in order that you might be what you want to be in the end. That's why this is a word that is actually, this whole sermon is a word of encouragement. This whole sermon of Hebrews, this whole book is a word of encouragement, a sign of God's love. Where's the love in this? The love is right here, verse 11. For the moment, it seems painful, but, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Maybe Tom Landry read this verse, but later, but later. What a word that you and I need to remember. Are you a later Christian? Are you a now Christian? Are you a later Christian? We need to be later Christians. When your loved one dies, you need to be a later Christian. All training now seems painful, not pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Later, you will have a glorious reunion with those you've lost. May we be later Christians and not now Christians. Third word, first word, endurance. Second word, uh, discipline or training, child rearing. Third word, 
Verse 12, verse 17. Holiness. Third word. Verse 12. Look there. The author says, gives a command. Get up. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Do you see the image here? What's the author doing? He's grabbing you by your shoulders and giving you a little shake. God's shaking you up. He's giving you bracing advice. He's saying, strengthen, strengthen your weak knees. And just by the way, as a side note, the you here is a y'all. The you here is a y'all. If we were to translate this into Southern proper English, it'd be a y'all. Lift y'alls, drooping hands, strengthen y'alls, weak knees. The point I'm making is not simply for laughs. The point is that it's a corporate thing. We're to strengthen each other's knees and hands. And notice what he says, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you know what God's obsessed about? You know what God's really obsessed about? God is obsessed about you being holy. That may be why we even sang holy, holy, holy this evening. Because God is obsessed about your holiness. The problem, friends, is not that God isn't passionate about holiness. The problem is that we're not passionate about holiness. I hope you understand that God does not really care in the end if you have a great job or not. He doesn't really care in the end. He doesn't really care if you have a great house or not. He doesn't care if you've got a great marriage or not. He's not interested in the fact if you're married or not. He doesn't care if you have a lot of kids or not. Not Not in the real end of things. In the real end, ultimately, his passion is for your holiness in your marriage or outside of it. He's passionate for you as a parent or not. He's passionate for you in the house that you're given. He's passionate for you in the job that you have. He's passionate for your holiness in all aspects. How do we know that? How can I say that? Because God didn't care about, God did not care about the job of his son when his son was on earth. Folks love to point out, for some reason this happened a lot in the 70s. I don't know why it is. You can tell me y'all who were alive then. For some reason, I think of it happening in the 70s a lot. People loving to point out that Jesus was a carpenter. All the all the vineyard movement, all the kind of uh, Jesus movement sort of people. Jesus was just a carpenter. Yes, he was a carpenter. But do you know how much the New Testament focuses on that one fact? Very little. Very little. The New Testament's not, God is not interested in the fact that his son had a job of carpentry. It mentions it, yes. But how much space do the Gospels give to the holiness of Christ displayed in all things? Do you understand that we don't have an idea of how many tables Christ can make in a day? We don't know how efficient he was at his work. We don't have an example of the carpentry he did. It's not to dismiss woodworking. Woodworking is great. It's not to dismiss jobs. Jobs are great in their place, in their place. And the focus of the New Testament, the focus of the word of God is so much more on our holiness than it is on our resume. The job of Jesus in the great scheme of all creation, the job that Jesus had 
is less important than the holiness he had. Or to put it differently, God had a far bigger vision for his son than the toys that we're obsessed with. Verse 10. Why does God discipline and train us? Our parents discipline us for a little bit of time as they seem best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. What's our good? That we may share his holiness. What is the goal that God's training you for? Sharing in his holiness. Here's the basic principle. Here's the first principle. No holiness, no heaven. It is a principle right here. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. His great desire is that you would see him. The great goal of your life is not simply to be holy because holiness is good. Do you see that? Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The goal, the prize is seeing the Lord. The goal, the prize is that beatific vision of Jesus Christ. God's great desire is nothing more than to sit down with you at table and see you face to face and talk with you. That is what he wants. And when he comes face to face with you in heaven, when you see the face of Jesus Christ, not in a mirror dimly as we do now, but truly fully as he is, he does not want you to be burned up with guilt or shame. He wants you to blossom into a beautiful smile as he declares, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet even as I say all of this, I know that there are some here who can hear this command to strive for holiness and take it the wrong way. Take it the wrong way. So let me say a word then about the fact that we are in Hebrews chapter 12. You know that before Hebrews chapter 12 comes Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm going to shock even more. Before Hebrews chapter 11 comes Hebrews chapter 10 and so on and so forth all the way down to chapter 1. The point is, this exhortation, this command, strive for holiness. It comes after 11 and a half chapters where Jesus Christ is put forth as the pure and perfect Savior, the great high priest, the glorious one, better than Melchizedek, the one who is greater than all the, the sheep that have been slaughtered. The point is, the author has prepared the ground. He's tilled the ground for this hard command, the hard command, strive for holiness. You are to strive for holiness. And yet, how are you to do it? You are to strive for holiness with the deep wells of sufficient salvation in Christ Jesus. It would be possible for you to hear this command and assume, i got to get cracking. And go out and formulate a plan tonight and change your life and do it all in your own equipment, with all of your own equipment. But as we saw last week, Jesus Christ supplies you with his fancy equipment. He gives you his equipment. He gives you himself. That is why we are not to look to ourselves and then strive for holiness. We are to consider him. We are to look to him and strive. And yet there is one last chilling warning 
verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, quote, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Why is root of bitterness, at least in my copy of the ESV, it's in quotes. Why is it in quotes? It's in quotes because it's a reference to Deuteronomy 29, 17 and following. This root of bitterness is seen. Moses there, Deuteronomy 29, talks about somebody who's an idolater, who turns away to false gods. They say, I'm going to give up on Jesus. I'm off. I'm, I'm bailing on God. And Deuteronomy says, this person talks. And they say, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. What is the root of bitterness? The root of bitterness is not just somebody who's bitter. The root of bitterness is actually somebody who says, I don't care about Jesus, but that's fine. I don't like Jesus, but he still has to save me. He still has to save me. In other words, it's the danger of presumption. The danger of presuming upon God's grace. There were people in this church who were talking about giving up the faith, bailing on Jesus, and they were thinking they could do that and still get into heaven. They could give up Jesus and say, oh, he'll still accept me. And the author says, you can't do that. You can't do that. And providentially, strikingly, the author of Hebrews uses an example. It's an example you should be familiar with, I suppose. Esau. He uses the tragic figure of Esau, the guy we heard about this morning. He says, don't be like Esau. Esau sold his birthright. He looked at the earthly stew, the red, red stuff. He was hungry. He wanted it. He didn't think about the invisible blessing of God. That's the pie in the sky. He, got, he had the food. He needed the food. He took pleasure today. He took comfort today. He did not persevere. He did not endure. He did not consider the training of God relevant to him. He didn't see himself as, as, as a son of the heavenly father. He saw himself as a guy who just needed a meal. And the sad thing is verse 17. This is one of the most tragic verses, I think, in the whole Bible. But you know that afterward. When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Remember how he goes to Isaac. He wants the blessing. He doesn't have it. It's already been given. It's already been given to Jacob. Esau is a tragic figure. You see, friends, God's kindness, his patience is meant to lead you to repentance. But the day will come, and it may be too late that you recognize the mistake you make. So don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake. It's a warning here. It's a testing thing. It's a training thing. It's an enduring thing. You have salvation as your birthright if you're a Christian. Do you know you have a birthright? Every Christian, everyone here has a birthright. Salvation in Jesus Christ. But you cannot love the world and get the blessing. You cannot love the world and get a cushy life here and get the second heaven there. It's what Rutherford says as well. Christ had one heaven and we want two. Really? He didn't say the really part. I added it in there. But the point is this. The foundations of the Christian faith are not that it's too easy or not that God's mean, 
but that it's hard. It's harder than you think, and yet God is better than you think. He's a better father than you think. The Christian life is more dangerous than you think, more difficult than you think, because it's a cross-bearing activity, and yet God is more loving than you think. He's more merciful than you think. And therefore, simply concluding with saying this, look to Christ and realize it's just a few more steps until you cross the finish line. Break through the pain barrier, not with your own strength, not with Gatorade, but with Jesus Christ. Break through the pain barrier and see you have just a few more steps until you reach glory with your heavenly father. He loves you as his sons. Let's pray. Father, we do come thanking you that you treat us as sons. You treat us not in a way that we deserve, but in the way that you call us. Your children. Help us to persevere under pressure to endure. And as we endure to gain our strength from Christ himself, we ask this in his name. Amen.